Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Get your swim gear on this week. We're heading to the Pacific Ocean and we're going to go underwater. We're going to head to Nan Madal and dive to see what is under the water. Now, we've had a number of different authors, research investigators, even some scientists that have been under the water to discover ruins and partial remains of cities. But today, we're going to actually see what could be the remains of Lemuria, the ancient land of Mu. And this is our program today with the return of research investigator Carol Nervig, who wrote the book, The Petroglyphs of Mu. Get your suit on and ready to dive. All this and more today on Earth Ancients. For Saturday, March 11th, 2023, this is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. Hey, happy Saturday to you, wherever you're listening around the world. I hope you're doing well. I have been posting a number of uh, ruins from different places that I've personally visited and I typically take a great deal of photographs of uh, mostly pyramidal structures, but that can also be museums and uh, artifacts and items that I find interesting. If you are uh, a visitor to the Earth Ancients and Facebook your, uh, Facebook page, you're going to see a, a group of photographs of Edzna. And this is a Mayan city that's in the state, Mexico state of uh, Chiapas. And it's very close by the downtown area. It's about 45 minutes by bus. I've been there a number of times. And each time I go, it's it's just beautifully manicured. They they put in lawns and it's just gorgeous to, to hang out. And I, I have posted some photographs of this uh, pyramid, the main pyramid in the Acropolis, Temple of Five Stories. It's called. And why they call it a temple, 
although it's shaped uh, like a pyramid, is that it has 22 rooms. They found 22 different individual rooms, um, some of them with some uh, some painting, some of them with some scenery. Very hard to tell, very, very eroded. But this is a very old place. It's uh, Apparently it was established around 300 B.C., very, very likely much earlier than that because they'll take the layers closest to the surface and uh, carbon date those for a date. I'm of the belief that the Maya are considerably older than what is estimated, you know, roughly 20. The current estimates are 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. And uh, I, I think they're much, much earlier uh, and I'll talk about that not only in my book, The Maya Controversy, but just in general from speaking to field archaeologists, uh, people like Richard Hansen, who by himself has said that he believes that the Maya were contemporaries of the Olmec. And that's not what we're told. We're told a whole different story. So anyhow, the images I've posted on Edzna are of this temple. And the temple is constructed, including four stairways, these rooms, and this top tower. And whoever are, were the designers just did a wonderful job. It's part of this uh, uh, grand Acropolis, which is a series of buildings that are all connected by walls. And by the way, when I say walls, these are stone, mortar, cement walls, the the classic, pre-classic, and this is what we have to go with right now, the, the Maya uh, definitions, classic, pre-classic, post-classic. <laughs> That's how they keep it, they keep them in order that way. They, the, the, the architects of this city uh, were geniuses. You should see these images because the, the temples connect with the pyramid, which is kind of a big temple connect with waterways, connect with fountains. And at its peak, it must have been gorgeous. It must have been just a beautiful place to visit. And the other thing is it has a series of sockbees. Now, remember, the sockbees are the Maya white roads. And the sockbee cluster or Maya highways that are part of this uh, city run into the city, and I mean right into the civic area, right into these Acropolis areas, and then they run out. So you, you know, walk, you walk into the city, you do your business, and then you walk out. Now, I had a conversation with Ed Barnhard the other day, and, and I was going, Ed, you know, they're finding these sockbees. Some of them are 100 yards across that run for miles and miles and miles. They're designed to move water. In other words, they're they're built with a highlight or a, a peak, and then they taper down so the water can run off. Uh, they're built with mortar, cement, and uh, uh, rocks, so they're built to really last a long time. It really appears that there were wheels in place. There were carts. There were items that were perhaps pulled by oxen or something or animals. He flat out said that, no, there's no proof that the Maya had the will. And I, I reminded him of all these uh, toys that I had seen in the museums. And he says, well, he believes that those are 
displaced, or, or in other words, they're uh, uh, out of sequence in terms of being found when the uh, Sakbis were in use. So, I that's our own that's our own archaeologist saying that. Now, remember, as much as I love Ed, he's a <laughs> traditionalist. He's classically trained, and so he's probably uh, he's just going to say what he feels, but. I'd sure as hell would love to find some wheels somewhere <laughs> to really validate these Sakbis. So anyhow, the Sakbis passed in through this city, Esna, and then they pass out. Take a look at the back of this uh, pyramid because it's just in the last couple of years, and I was there last year, the last couple of years they've uh, what they call consolidated, excavated, and they have uh, fixed the supports and the port partial stairway of the rear of this place. And it's huge. It's 110 feet tall. So I don't know how the archaeologists can call it a temple, and I think their reason for doing so is the, the rooms, 22 rooms. Very, very unusual-looking uh, pyramid. Uh, very uh, strange uh, fixtures on the side, these half round designs, what they're used for, we don't know. Uh, I'm of the opinion that there was a lot of energetics there, a lot of telluric fields. I, you can't get into it like we used to. When I first was there like four years ago, you could climb a portion of the pyramid. Now you can't get any, any anywhere close to it. Four years ago, I didn't have a tri-field meter to measure the fields. Now I do. But you can't get close enough to do any measurements. So unfortunately, we don't know if it sits on a telluric field or not. I suspect, given the date that it does, that it's the central fixture for the whole city. So anyhow, go to Facebook, go to Earth Ancients. You'll see it on either the group page or the international page. And um, hey, tell me what you think. Send me an email, earthancients for you at gmail.com. I'd be curious to know what your impressions are. Hey, this week we are going to uh, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, we're having a, a follow-up uh, with Carol uh, Nerving. She wrote the book Petroglyphs of Mu, but today's program is The Lost Legacy of Lemuria. And what's fascinating about her perception, and by the way, the reason I'm, I'm coming back with her is that we only touched a brief portion of this new book, The Petroglyphs of, of Mu, uh, and talked about the petroglyphs and the stones and, and some of the uh, fixtures that are on Manmadal and some of the surrounding uh, areas like uh, Easter Island and some of those other strange, strange islands that are in the Pacific. Today's program deals with the underwater archaeology that is just beginning to be scratched. And it's really a challenge, I believe, not only financially for the universities to send uh, divers, team members, archaeologists, uh, and researchers down underwater, but it's time-consuming, and the logistics are not the same as being on land, obviously, time allowances, uh, being able to do surveys, getting and choosing which artifacts to study, because you can't just take the whole <laughs> ground 
swell of artifacts. You got to be very selective. So this all takes time. One of my issues, though, is the fact that when we do have great evidence like uh, uh, Crescentus in uh, New Orleans, uh, what is off the uh, Florida coast and, and, and other areas off the Cuban coast down about half a mile or more underwater, is great evidence, if not direct evidence, of civilization. And I think some of the reluctance uh, with Crescendus, and we've heard it from uh, a number of people, is the fact when we start digging down at that level, it brings up questions about the time period and who were the people who actually built these places. This is what we're running into today, Carol's look at the legacy of Lemuria off of the uh, island of Nan Madal is a is a ruin, a significant ruin. She's going to talk about it today with us. But this ruin is perhaps thousands and thousands of years old. And when I say thousands and thousands, remember uh, Clifford Mahoudi, uh, the, the native Zuni elder, said it was roughly twenty to 28,000 years that there was a migration from Mu into the Americas. So this place in, uh, in uh, Indonesia is significantly old. And on land, they get dates that go back about 8,000 years. But if you go underwater, it doubles, triples, and quadruples, if not more, because every so many feet you drop counts for years in the past. Now, I don't have any idea, and perhaps there's been some studies about the depth of some of these lost cities. Now, Crescendus is at, I think, 40 to 80 feet. What does that mean? How old can that be? Is that more than logic would have it? <laughs> and when I say logic, I'm thinking of the three to 4,000-year-old uh, time period that we give the Maya. This is, a, this is the issue I think that uh, the orthodoxy is dealing with, is that if they uncover and begin digging into these, uh, these underwater ruins, they have to explain themselves. They really have to explain themselves. And so people don't think about that. I think they do. I think the archaeological community does because they're like, you know, they're, they're, they're opening a Pandora's box. So it may be left to the newer generations who are more uh, open, who want to know about these things. Uh, I think it's going to take a handful of individuals supported by an Elon Musk, supported by a billionaire outside of universities that is going to make the great discoveries because the universities are going to plot along for for another decade or two and uh, subject us to their limited perspectives on our past. And that's just the way it is. I, I want to mention that I am uh, currently writing a book called The Maya Controversy. I open with the same issue that I'm talking about, and this is the work of... Uh, Sergio Gomez, Dr. Gomez, who uh, discovered this underground uh, tunnel under the uh, the Quetzalcoatl Pyramid at Teotihuacan. His questioning was very limited. He was just looking for a 
uh, a king tomb or, or a tomb of a, a wealthy person, he missed out on opportunities to, to really look at how this pyramid works and the machinery behind it. And this is what I discovered. So this, this thought goes to the whole uh, limited perspective of the current archaeological community and how uh, newer discoveries, again, will either come out of the younger generation or independent researchers, yours truly, who are looking at these phenomenon from a different perspective. I have a short three-minute audio from a television program that was featured on the uh, Science Channel about seven years ago, which talks about uh, a group of uh, researchers who uh, use scanning technology to uh, learn about a landmass that is off the coast of India and very close to uh, Africa. And it's all about these strange animals known as lemurs, uh, these creatures, and where they're found. But in that research, uh, they began, and these are younger scientists, began to think that this landmass must have been occupied. And they take it one step further, refreshingly so, and look at the possibilities that various hominin, uh, Homo sapiens sapien, and perhaps earlier types of humans may have been bred, or excuse me, they may have emerged from this landmass. So let's have a, have a quick listen. In the 1860s, there was a zoologist by the name of Philip Sclater who proposed that there was a landmass that stretched from Madagascar all the way to India. Sclater suggested that such a landmass could explain an apparent discrepancy in the evolutionary tree of species found in Africa and India. His reasoning for thinking this is that you can find lemurs in Madagascar, and you can find lemurs in India, but not in Africa. And Madagascar is a lot closer to Africa than India. At some point in history, Madagascar and India had to be connected by a giant landmass. Sclater names the lost landmass Lemuria. Several other Victorian academics suggest that Lemuria could even hold the key to one of the greatest mysteries of human evolution. Some scholars suggest that this lost landmass is where we originated from, mankind. This is where we came down from the trees, which is now what we call the missing link. Maybe all the evidence we need is on Lemuria and it's this land bridge and it's now buried underwater. The missing link in human evolution may just have been found from space. Then on the island of Mauritius comes another clue. Scientists go to Mauritius and scoop up some sand and other soil, and what they found was something very surprising. What they found in those samples were zircons. Zircon crystals are minerals created when continents first formed during the Earth's turbulent geological past. The fact that you find zircon crystals on this young island suggests that there must be some kind of continental crust that's beneath the island. Geologists now believe that the lost continent detected by the NASA satellites was once part of an ancient supercontinent. 180 million years ago, the giant landmass began to break up, 
creating Africa, South America, Australia, and Antarctica. Apocalyptic tectonic forces pull the lost continent apart and submerge it beneath the waves. When a continent breaks up, the entire Earth's crust will just be ripped open and leaves chunks of these continents just stranded in the middle of nowhere. Gravity mapping of the Earth's oceans is revealing previously undiscovered parts of the planet. As to what else lies beneath the waves, we can only speculate. We now have the technology to apply what we have found in this one particular place to the entire globe. This might be the first of many more ancient continents that we find beneath the waves. I'd like to know more about that and what scanning technology they used in that uh, in that program. So interesting stuff. So our program today is the return of Carol Nerving. She wrote the book The Petroglyphs of Mu. Has to do with Nan Madal and some of those strange artifacts that are left on uh, that island. Uh, the program today is the Lost Legacy of Lemuria. Hey guys, after three years of restrictions, COVID-based problems, contact in the desert is back. It's back in Indian Wells, California. It's a suburb of Palm Springs, and it is an amazing world-class conference. From June 2nd to the 4th, you can hear people like Graham Hancock, A.V. Loeb, Linda Moulton Howe, and over 125 experts, scientists, and research investigators that will provide you with the latest information on a variety of topics. This is a chance to see your favorite author, meet with them personally, and spend a weekend hearing the latest from the greatest. For more information, go to contactinthedesert.com and get all the details. Be sure to stop by and see me. We'll be there recording, interviewing, and I'd love to hear from you. Contact in the Desert. June 2nd to the 4th. For more information, contactinthedesert.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. week we're having a author come back carol nervig she wrote a fascinating book called the petroglyphs of Mu, pompeii nonbadal and the legacy of lemuria we had her on uh, late last year and i just didn't get enough out of her and i told her i said carol we gotta have to have you back because your book is so richly deserving of more than 60 minutes and uh earth ages typically is a 60 minute program but Sometimes there's just more than we can we can cover. So she was agreeable to come back, and we have her here with us. Carol, how are you? How are things in Ecuador? Well, I'm doing well. Everything's good. The weather, it's kind of rainy, but here where I live, it's springtime all year long. So oh, I'm is it? Like an hour from the equator, so we don't get a season change. So it's temperate. Uh, what's like when, when you say it's spring all the time? It's like in the mid seventies. Does it ever get above seventy? What what was what that? Uh, what kind of weather is that? Yeah, around you know sixty seventies. But I'm at eighty five hundred feet, oh. so being close to you know it's not everybody. You know, well if you go to the coast of Ecuador, it's hot and tropical, but at at my elevation, eighty five hundred feet. That's higher than Denver. Yeah. Yes. So did you have trouble acclimating when you first moved there or had you lived there so long you kind of just felt it all kind of fell together? Well, it it takes everybody about six months to really acclimate in the first two, three weeks, you know, it was really exhausting. But yeah. And now, you know, I don't pay any attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always wonder about those high elevations. It's like, okay, I want to go out and get a get a hike in today, and then you're you're thinking like, okay, now how much exertion do I want to want to get into there? So, do you go out and do a little walking, hiking? Yeah, 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 definitely. And it's really, yeah. I mean, I'm two hours north of Quito, and so it's a small about. About eight thousand, eighty-five. About the same amount of population, and uh, so it's a small, smaller town. Which yeah. I, and you know, um, uh, that part of the world. Obviously, you're from the United States, uh, born and raised. But when you're down in South America, they don't think of exercise the same as we do, do they? I mean, they they do they have uh, parks where you can hike, or is it more nature observation? Well, they're, they do have some national parks, but they're more for protection, you know, of those areas. As far as, I mean, you can go anywhere and hike up in the mountains and, and, and it's, 
on, you know, just the country roads, the back roads, or there are mountains to climb, but nothing's very organized. I mean, it's not like you have a a trail with markings or any of that kind of thing. So when you Uh, want to go out for some air, do you just kind of walk around the block or is there like a path that you do kind of a meditative Carol's uh, relaxation hike, walk, whatever you want to call it? (laughs) Well, my just my short, I mean, I can, you know, two, three blocks, I'm out in the country, in the countryside. Wow. Which is beautiful however the dogs are a problem so on my my usual route what i do is i i walk uh, a couple of miles to this sculpture and the interesting thing it's a chicana you know the square the latin cross uh the traditional i mean it's oh, just like crucifix the, yeah well no no it's equal and it's equal, oh, it's and equal. It's, Oh, okay. Part of culture. And so they built in the entry to our town, they built a sculpture of this, but it's three dimensional. And then in the middle of it, it has a spiral coming down. So that's my, my ritual walk. I go up there and face the four directions and kind of, you know, tune in. <laughs> Very cool. I love that. Well, uh, in your biography on this book, it says you spent four decades, uh, in, in researching, uh, this, uh, uh, Micronesian area. And would you say that your interest kind of led to where you're living now? Is there kind of a understanding and undercurrent for, uh, ancient civilizations in the part of the world you're in? Well, not too much with the local population. I mean, the, the, that concept of, I mean, they're, they are into their own specific, uh, sites here, but in Ecuador, um, like there's a site an hour and a half away, uh, Kuchaski, and there are 13 pyramids and wow. they have these ramps going up them. And it was used on really high. It's close to the equator and, uh, very high in the mountains so they could see all directions and they, you know, astronomy was a part of the site selection and, and function of the site. But it's hardly, you know, I mean, that's a really important place in this country. And it's like, there's not a, not too many people are, are interested in that. I mean, the visitors and the expats, yes. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the awareness of that concept. Who is that uh, that uh, complex attributed to? Uh, who were the people that actually built those pyramids? Well, I think it's the Kitu Kara. And the, the Kara, you know, it's all pre-Incan. It's a pre-Incan site. Okay. So Very I mean. old. Yeah. I mean, every, anything in, in South America, everyone just says, oh, Inca. Well, no. Even, you know, like in Cusco, there are layers and you know the the base uh, the base layer is this perfect stone fitted stone and then the next layer is a little bit sloppier and the top layer is usually just kind of more rubble like mm-hmm. and uh but i believe and yet to answer your question i wasn't really sure why i moved here but i mean as time is i've been here 10 years so it's like all these these uh, survivors of Mu in the coast of South America, there are a lot of colonies of Mu. I mean, when it was 
larger land masses, it wasn't that far. And like anywhere, people migrate and set up outposts or colonies. And certainly when the land sank, you know, the, the legends are people coming from the South Pacific to the coast of South America. And the various yeah. cultures have their, and it's like in Colombia and the Musica people. <laughs> it's uh, so, but I didn't really uh, know that too much before, before I got here. So I feel that's sort of why I'm here. That's an interesting point you make. You're just, your passion for the ancient, I mean, really ancient past, because when we think of Mu, we're talking. I mean, the natives who have talked to me say the, their, the Zuni migration or the people who became the, the Zuni, mm-hmm. the migration was 28,000 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's a significant period of time. Uh, and so if, if, given that, uh, period, what would be built may not even be around anymore. Any of the buildings or any of the pyramids, unless they're megalithic stone. And it sounds like these pyramids you're talking about, who knows, you know. Do you think um, Church Ward had it right in his uh, Moo series uh, describing? I mean, you picked up a lot of his uh, uh, books in your uh, in your copy, the Petroglyphs of Moo. Um, you know, he 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 taught he refers to Niven in the very beginning and the research that he does in Mexico, but uh, so many people later, you know decades later thought that churchward was making it all up Mm -hmm. and what's your feeling on that well you know i have mixed feelings and it's he's very controversial but how if he didn't where did he get it even if he i mean he if he say he made it all up i mean that's quite amazing all that information and the thing that really changed my mind was in the in the back of the back of the book, there are photographs of petroglyphs that I found around the world that match the petroglyphs he said were from Mu. I mean, and I mean that was like I just started, you know, I was Googling all over the place for uh various petroglyphs, and I come across these. And to me, there's like, okay, well, this guy, he had some information somehow, somewhere. And there were these Tibetan libraries. I mean, there's evidence of that. And uh, I, you know, I I just, to again, to me, those symbol, and, you know, I'm all about symbols. And so it made a lot of sense to me. And, and the T symbol that we're, like is all over Turkey in various sites, the big T megaliths. And that was in his book, he's got the T and he's, and it's with some things on the side of it. And it was one of the symbols of mood. And in Frank Joseph's book, the lost continent of Mu, he has a photograph of that symbol in Japan. Wow. A T symbol in the exact, so, you know, I can't, you know, his theories for the gas belts and why it collapsed. I mean, who knows? I'm no geologist. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's something to, it seems like I came across something at some point about some possible uh, geological feasibility. But again, I focus on that. But 
I think he is, and if nothing else, he certainly started a lot of, of research. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's something to what he has to say. And as far as, you know, if you look at all the indigenous cultures around the world, so much of that is consistent. And, right. and the, and so much of the evidence of Mu, it's where do people settle? They settle on the coast. So what gets submerged first? Exactly. <laughs> Especially if Mu is as big as it, uh, some of the diagrams show. It's like a monstrous continent. Um, right. In your mind, and I don't, you may have it in your book. I didn't see any great evidence of it, but what were the rough dates uh, of Mu? We, we, when we think of Atlantis, we get Edgar Casey, we get Plato, we have a lot of other uh historians that give us bits and pieces uh it's noted for three phases one is very early 400,000 years ago and then there's a destruction and then we have 28 to 30,000 or 50,000 years and then 28 and then perhaps the last destruction is 9,600 plus years ago when we talk about mu what is the general timeline prior to the destruction? Well, complicated question. And a lot of it parallels what the dates you're using for Atlantis. And the one thing about Mu Lemuria, and the thing is that the, the first phases of Lemuria, it was like there wasn't, it wasn't, beings were not that physical. Okay? Right. So it was more of a, an etheric thing. And how long did that take to come and embody or create the physical aspect? So that's, um, and there are, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, between 50,000 and 25,000, whatever. I mean, that was, uh, the, the move that maybe we, that is remembered by the Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders. You know, I think that's what they're tuning into that, that, uh, I shouldn't say tuning into. They have their oral histories. And, but Mu in Lemuria was not just a physical place. It was, it was a global culture, if you will. <clears throat> and it's, and so, that you know the evidence. Oh, here's Mu. Here's here's Atlanta. Here's this piece. Here's that piece. Uh, you know, excuse me. Identifying a particular landmass, I think, is a little bit limiting. Okay. And I, you know, the dating is just, and time in the in the earliest stages, time itself was more wasn't so linear. So that throws in another complication. And as it became, you know, more physical, then there were things to date and cultures and so on and so forth, language. Yeah. One of the things that I hadn't thought about last uh, in our first um, conversation, Carol, was the fact that there seems to be more and more evidence of multiple epics, periods when there were cultures that were here, they developed into a high level and then either destroyed themselves or were destroyed by others. And we've had, uh, we have Dr. Mark Carlotta who wrote a book called Before Atlantis. Mm -hmm. 
you might mm-hmm. know Mark. And then I had a, a Dutch researcher who is a mathematician who believes there were at least five epics, the oldest going back to 400,000 years. And the way they know these epics are actual events is that the remaining pyramids, buildings, and structures all line up to earlier North Pole uh, positions. So do you have any feelings on on the possibilities of uh, any ruins that could be associated with Mu Lemuria? Well, first and foremost, um, adjacent to Nanmadal. I mean, Nanmadal is built, you know, in later days, but adjacent to Nanmadal, under the water, who knows how deep, the Pompeian oral histories talk about the city of the Shining Ones, the Shining City, Kanimueso. Well, interesting term, shining, from other, <laughs> you know, cultures and so forth. Um, and so, but it's deep. It's very deep. And so, you know, without a submarine, uh, but the oral history is very, on um, Pompeii oral histories, there are a lot of variations and there's a lot of versions, whatever. It's difficult to sort through. However, there's no, they're all very consistent about Nambadal being next to the city of the ancients under the water. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's how Nambadal was built because, well, the later phases, the megalithic phase, there were earlier phases, who knows, at, at, um, at, at the same location. And there were some stone structures. I mean, the, the typically, you know, Westerners, we want to have one, you know, <laughs> we want to have answers to all these, uh, like there's like one particular date or, well, that's not the case with Namadal. These, these two brothers, shamans, magicians, whatever came from, uh, the South and they, uh, they were looking for a place to build their ritual center, their administrative center. And so they went clockwise around the island, uh, checking out and testing, you know, building some structures on these, looking for the right place. Well, then they climbed this, there's a pyramid mountain that's actually in a, a called Takayu and it's alignment, the petroglyph site, the pyramid mountain and Namadal. It's in alignment. And so they climbed this peak. And then they saw in the bay uh, uh, near the reef, they saw the, the city of the ancients under the water. Oh. And that's why they built Namadal, where they built it. Oh, how to- fascinating. So they actually could see the water was clear enough. They could see the tips of the ruins from the earlier people. Well, depending on what is a physical eye or, you know. Oh, psychic guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't see how you could literally physically see. Uh, I mean, I've been to the, that pyramid and I've looked, I mean, it would be, you know, unless it's something I can't understand, but I don't think I would be inner sight. They, they were up there and they probably, they were on the line, you know, and they felt the energy and they, you know, recognize the place or the portal. And I believe that the Kanimueso, the city under the water, 
The reason that was built, it was part of the ancient system of pyramids or megalithic structures on these, you know, uh, picos, these naval, navels, energetic navels or portals, whatever you want. I want to talk about the energy of these places. We kind of briefly uh, glanced at it last time. Um, would you say Nanmadal is built on top of an earlier temple or uh, ruin? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's what Kanimwesa. I mean, if you consider that city under the water, sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there are supposedly entryways in the, uh, in the harbor, in the, the, uh, bay there, uh, to this city. Now, uh, there, many have documented these pillars under the water near Namadal. And they say, well, these are the, the entrance to the city, well, the columns are pretty much coral. They've been tested. I mean, they're very weird that they're in. And two of them have been tested, drilled through coral, but one was not drilled all the way through. So maybe, and then also, why did that coral grow there in a weird? I mean, it can happen in other locations, but I did a ton of scuba diving around there and uh, I never saw anything like that. Uh, so there, there, uh, well, uh, so layers, you know, layers, uh, and, and what's made it all kind of confusing. They just, I mean, last January, they came up with a new Tufts University. They went to Pompey Island and its neighbor island, Kushrai, where there's, similar ruins to Nam at all. And they tested the mangrove sediment. The mangrove men found fossils and their findings were such that, you know, the mangroves, if the water's rising, they grow higher and higher. I mean, Mm -hmm. if the sea level, relative sea levels. And so they, the, what they found, their conclusion was this, and they went, they drilled 5,000 years down. And so their conclusion was that for some reason next to these two islands, the sea level was rising or the islands were subsiding faster than anywhere else in the Pacific, which is, you know, who knows? I have no idea. And how, and that would make Nanmadal the its construction date a thousand years earlier than everyone has been saying. You know, did, did they come back with any carbon dating on on uh, the core samples? Well, it's just uh, oh, they in the study they did. I can't. If you're interested, I can send you the study. Uh, it's uh, hold on a second. Uh, I'm just curious to know because you know it's not, it's all speculation uh, when you begin using carbon because you're got you have to find something that's organic and you know when you're uh, uh, Nan Madal is all these basalt <laughs> blocks you know and I think last time you were mentioning that there's a, there were a few tests that were done on uh, fire campments or something but that who knows how recent those are. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, I'm just kind of, I don't know what to do with this information because, you know, 
Oh, well, the, their conclusion was Namadal was built on dry land. Oh, weird. So I'm going, I'm going, crying, trying. So they're, they're saying the sea rose fairly significant. Uh, did they give a, 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 a height of the sea? Well, no, they, uh, not. Wouldn't that make it an ice age a city? Oh, like 9,000 years old when the ice melt? Well, it's just, I mean, in general, the Pacific, you know, my understanding, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. In general, the Pacific has, you know, the sea level has been slowly dropping. Wait, hold on. Can I find this summary paragraph? Okay. Although relative sea level, the height of the land relative to the height of the ocean next to it has fallen during the past 5,000 years across much of the tropical Pacific. In Micronesia, radiocarbon dating showed that relative sea level has risen significantly by about 14 feet because the islands are sinking. Oh, interesting. Um, so what, what do we consider? If, if Man Madal was built on top of a, a significantly earlier culture, what was it built for? Was it a, was it a, the front of a, um, was it kind of like a um, a, a barracks or a, kind of a, a hard wall for keeping people out, or did it actually house people over a period of time? What do they suspect? Well, on the earliest, around zero uh, CE, they found artifacts, and but that was in the the tidal areas on the reef, and there were. There were only like two more simple basalt structures back then. Mm-hmm. And so uh, then at about 1,000 uh, CE, uh, <clears throat> these two brothers came and they started building. And that's when the huge, you know, the huge megalithic stuff. But there were things there before. And how much is underneath what we see today as well? Right. And it was built on dry land. So that even further complicates. So, in your estimation, when the brothers came and built Nanmadal, you kind of intimated that there were walkways to the earlier structures. So, uh, and you're just telling us now, 14 feet water rise. Uh, that's a lot. Um, when you've dove off of the Nanmadal, how how far deep? How deep is it? Pretty deep, more than 14 feet. Oh, yeah, because Namadal is right <clears throat> at the edge of where the reef drops off. So when I was diving there along, um, how did I end up doing this? Uh, well, there are kind of some some rumors of tunnels there, but I was diving with the historic preservation officer in when I went back in the early nineties and he, and uh he was my old student from Peace Corps. Anyway, so we were we were going along the side of the reef looking for any clues of this city or whatever. And it's difficult, it's very murky. You can't see very far ahead of you and there are lots of sharks around there. But um <clears throat> we went uh we weren't very deep we, I mean, I've been like 70, 80 feet in that area, but this particular time we were shallow, only 40 feet and we were going along. And then it looked, we came across this 
it was like a opening of a natural cave or something. So we kind of swam in a little bit. And of course, being Micronesia, we, I was, I had one flat, we had one flashlight, right? <laughs> and so we, you know, I'm thinking, well, what's this? And then at the far end of the area, the, the like opening area, there was, there was a, <clears throat> a hole, a tunnel that was like two feet by two feet of columnar basalt. Oh. And, you know, we couldn't, I mean, I have a picture, a photo, I, but it, you can't really see anything. Anyway, uh, so, but we couldn't go in the tunnel because we had our tanks on. Right. And that would have been a little, probably not wise. <laughs> so, um then we swam on a little further. We found another one of these things with another two tunnels going horizontally and one going vertically. And it was like that. And he still, he still had the flashlight. So he saw this and then he just made a beeline to the surface of the water. I'm going, (laughs) where is he going? Well, I had to follow yeah. And so when I got to the, and this is, I mean, he's local Pompeian, but he went to the University of New Mexico. I mean, he wasn't, and he's historic preservation. I mean, he was an educated person, not, and got to the surface. And I said, why the hell did you leave? And, and he had this look on his face that he didn't even respond. He did was, he see something that upset him or was there some symbology of, some kind that was well just finding these man-made tunnels no one knew you know no one has seen them before Hmm. and 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 so i think he was just i mean he also knows all the the magic of myths and legends and stuff so it's like made that real for him Mm -hmm. and uh, unfortunately he's he's no longer with us so uh but i did and then after that, I kept bringing up the tunnels, and he wouldn't talk about it. Was there he some just, myth that about tunnels or, you know, some ancient people or demons or something? Well, in general, locals, especially the, when I first got there, now it's about tourism and whatever. But they did not go to Nam at all. They did not want to go there. Too many ghosts there. Hmm. And... uh yeah, so it was a, and you know, when you go there, it's not like this uplifting Alleluia chorus kind of sacred site. It's very intense. We're going to take a few minutes to identify our sponsors for this podcast, and we will be right back with you. And my guest today, Carol Nervig, will be right back. My guest today is Carol Nervig, who has written the book, The 
petroglyphs of Mu. She has spent over 40 years studying, researching, and writing about this ancient site, which may originally have been part of the fabled land of Lemuria. As you were diving, were you looking at uh, columns and, and roads and buildings? What were you looking at as you were diving to the bottom off the uh, uh, off Nan Madal? Well, the ancient city of the legends is deep. It's not, you know, it's not right there. Maybe yeah. a passageway or a way to get there. And so, because we were, we weren't very deep at all. And so we were just looking for any evidence of, and, you know, the, the above us, you know, were the, the foundations of Namadal and there are some fallen basalt logs, columnar basalt, you know, laying around here and there. And I think Santa Faya has some photographs of that, that, you know, everybody seems to be using, uh, but I think they're hers. And, um, uh, so, uh, I mean, we were just looking for any kind of evidence. And the fact that he went along with me, there's, you know, that he believed there was something reason worth doing that was kind of interesting as well. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so has anyone, any university or any uh, exploration group imaged some of the deeper areas off of Namadal. I mean, what's that? What's that ocean? Is that the Indonesian Ocean? Uh, no, it's just the Pacific Ocean. That's Pacific I mean, Ocean, right? Um, because when, when we when, when you when you have these um, these myths and legends of the great city laying underneath Namadal, it would behoove a research team to really use some of the latest technology to scan. Of course, we can't, we talked about this beforehand, uh, Carol. When you reveal an ancient city that's say a hundred feet underwater, that brings up all kinds of questions. It perhaps turns our history on its ear, especially in the Pacific. And all of a sudden you have a city that's 10, 20, uh, plus thousand years <laughs> in the past. And how do you explain that? So maybe this is why there's a reluctance. What's your feeling? Well, first of all, everything in the Pacific, so many archaeological sites in the Pacific have not even really been explored. I mean, there's just because of the remoteness, the expense, and people don't know about these places. I mean, when I first saw Namadal in 1970, uh, it's like no one ever heard of it. Uh, and so anyway, uh, there's that. And they did do, the Japanese did a <clears throat> underwater it wasn't LIDAR. It was some kind of underwater technology imaging and of the, the Medellin Bay, the, the Nakop Bay that's right adjacent to. And according to them, they didn't uh, see anything. And also I've done diving in that whole area and haven't, but that was, that's only like, you know, 100, 150 feet deep. It's not that deep. And so, and they have done a LIDAR of Namadal and the adjacent it's built adjacent to a natural. I island. think I remember that. That's a fairly recent, a recent scan, yeah. isn't it? And it's very cool because, I mean, it doesn't show much 
anything new about Nam at all, you know, the outlines of the, the perimeters of the structures. Yeah. But that island is covered with uh, terracing and, you know, signs of uh, uh, cultivation. And so that answers one of the mysteries. How did they get their food? Well, it was right there. And there's a point in the center. I, you know, I found many alignments uh, uh, to various places in Amidal. And that, I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting into in my next book. And so to me, the LIDAR was really exciting because of that. Yeah. And, and then if you go the other direction, outside the reef because you know once the reef drops off how many thousands of feet is it and no one's done anything outside the reef and i don't know if if that's possible even yeah but i've tried many many times to use google earth at the coastline there and it goes out and i i'm not very good at yeah i really need some help with that goes out a little ways and then it's all blurry yeah, so it's probably too was, deep. Yeah, but but there are other places in the ocean that you know it, it. There's a there's an area that's that's really cloudy, and then you go further out, and then it's more clear. And mm-hmm. it you know that could well be some technical thing. I don't know, but uh, very uh, disappointing for me because you know that might be a way to see something. Is there any? Uh... Indigenous stories of of uh, major ruins off in that area that you're talking about that's so so deep that Google doesn't even penetrate it. Well, the legends of of Kanimueso. That's that that's the main one, the only one, but it's okay. very specific, and uh, there uh, and the. Yeah, the uh yeah, I can't I mean for Pompey Island, I mean I can't speak of other places, but for Pompey Island, uh that's that's the main one and everybody knows about it. Right. And, and so is is uh Namadal and Pompey, are they kind of like outliers where the original move would have been? They would have been uh uh like in the further furthest regions because when I think of Mu, there's no real Noted like, well, this was Poseidon, the major city, and there this was there's no unless you can tell me about uh recent uncoverings and research that actually says that this is the area where the major populations were of Mu and things like that. What do you say? Well, I mean I mean, who knows? But well, on the on uh, according to Church Ward, uh Non Modal, they he and Kanimwe, that was one of the seven cities of Mu. And these various and it's under the water. And so uh and that and the thing is about Mu, you know, it was large and then you know different sources have different things to say about it, but it, it broke off into three separate continents, one of them being Australia, and which is living proof right there. Yeah. And uh then these other, you know, as they sank, so the major cities, of course, would mostly be underwater. And the and the mountaintops would in most indigenous cultures are very sacred. Right. And so that's where their temples are where they're 
And that was my point on the, the, the petroglyph site, because if there's a huge, you know, uh, megalithic city under the water, then the petroglyph site would be the mountaintop area. Right. So, and where the ritual and sacreds, uh, uh, the megaliths and the petroglyphs and so forth. Right. And, and so also you're mentioning Australia may have been part of it. Hawaiian islands, New Guinea islands, all those island, uh, countries are, are all, uh, part of it and they all have their own history, but they all also, uh, cherish their, their, their mountains and volcanoes <laughs> because they're all part of the, uh, the original source. Let's talk a little bit, uh, Carol, about the energies of Man Madal and, and, uh, uh, these other sites. You mentioned that this guy that you were with when you did this dive kind of freaked out when he saw this one tunnel. And I'm wondering, and obviously the, the native people are going to be much more sensitive because they've lived there their whole life. They were born there. Are there, Rumors of anomalous uh, energies and and uh, uh, sightings and actual people working with this what I call telluric energy. You know, I was always looking for that more specifically. I mean, what happened in terms of the tunnels after uh, he wouldn't really talk about them. Like he wasn't going to give credence to, and I don't know what that was about. He didn't. Uh, I think he was, uh, conflicted. And then, so, but he did go, we went back at least a dozen more times to the exact same spot. We knew exactly where we were. And do you think we could find those tunnels? And maybe that's why I didn't talk about it because we went back and we couldn't find them. And so I, I ended up talking to this, this, uh, Pompeian elder, this woman, and I was telling her about this, uh, these tunnels we're trying to find. She just looked at me. She says, well, you got to see them once. That's enough. I mean, it's like you were, you know, you were allowed to see them once and, you know, physical proof. Of, uh, so what do you, I mean, this is interesting. You're bringing this up. So were they, um, smooth uh very inviting tunnels were they huge uh i mean you're making them sound like they're um coming out of a vortex that they show up at the right time at the right moment uh given where you're moving into well the tunnels were only two feet by two feet okay square. but were they cut perfectly with columnar basalt oh so interesting Okay. And whether, uh, I mean, there are tunnels in various locations under Namadal, and one was for bringing fish in from outside the reef. So they had that capability. And, uh, I've always believed that Nandoas, the main Namadal structure that everybody sees in the, there, there's, there are crypts in there and the, they always call it a tomb. Well, I don't think it's a tomb. I think it's a, you know, it was a passageway down into. So I think those sites are somehow connected and the tunnels that we saw, what they were, for, you know, I have, I have no idea. 
Okay. Um, have you uh, experienced any uh, uh, energetic uh, anomalies while you were doing research? Where you, you know, when I say anomalies, uh, sometimes you go to. A, uh, I've been to a number of of pyramids, old, uh, recently excavated, and you walk by them and you feel like you're you're uh, stepping on a, a battery or something. You get a little charge. Do you have any sensations? Have you had any sensations with any of the places that you've been over there? Well, not at all. Again, it's like not, it's kind of a heavy, you know, I did a lot of meditating in there and, and it's not like my experiences, like in the pyramids or Machu Picchu or, you know, wherever. However, one time <clears throat> I was scuba diving with a group along the reef approaching Namadal. And I don't know, we were not too deep, 70, 80 feet. <clears throat> and we we're going along and I was just slowing down. The rest of the group went ahead of me. They left me behind, which, you know, professionally, that's, <laughs> I didn't care. Yeah. And I was, I've never had anything like this happen to me. I was like, <clears throat> I was there. I was, I had to kind of move and swim a little but I was not there. I mean, and I don't know how long I was gone or how, uh, I have no idea. And <clears throat> I, uh, and the weird thing, you know, my upbringing uh, at that point in my life, this was a very odd thing. I just started repeating the Lord's prayer, you know, in my mind over and over. That's all I remember. Oh, you were afraid then. Something upset you. I I wasn't really. It was just all autopilot. I just, you know, it was like I was there, but I wasn't there. When you say you weren't there, did the the setting, the scenery, the uh, uh, environment change in some manner? Well, I was underwater, and so not really. I mean, it was just this sense. I mean, I was, I don't know how long, you know, was five minutes or 15 or half an hour. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, so what I've come to conclude over time is there are some alignments there in right in that area. And, uh, you know, it was some kind of an out of body experience perhaps because of the portal energy. <clears throat> yeah. Talk about that portal energy. Uh, uh, I mean, there must be concerns about it by the locals. They probably don't even call it portal energy. They probably call it something else. Well, they don't, like I said, they don't, <laughs> until very recently, they really didn't want to have much to do with them at all. But I think the the powerful portal energy is connected with the city of Kanimweso under the water. So it's not, you know, directly at Nam at all. <clears throat> yeah. And, who knows what transpired, you know, the Sautalur dynasty that was there. They were like nasty people, cannibals. And, you know, it was like they had slaves and, you know, they were not in the beginning. They were OK. And then they devolved. Fascinating. I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the the human beings that uh, came out of uh, Mu. In her book, uh, Susan Miller, excuse me, Dr. Susan Martinez, uh, and she wrote a book called the, the, the Lost History of the Little People. 
she uh, describes a whole race of small humans. They're barely three feet tall mm-hmm. who migrated to from Mu to uh, Central America and, and uh, Mexico. And I've seen ruins that are for small people uh, uh, in Mexico. The most notable is a place called Tulum on the Caribbean coast. Yeah. Yeah. Those ruins are for small, tiny individuals. Never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're like little, little temples and little roads and things like that. Uh, but what, what, uh, legacy has, has come down to you in your research about these Homo sapiens? Well, the, um, you know, there are, uh, on Pompey Island in the oral history that they have the, the Kona, the giants, and the Shokele, the little people. And in, in that book, in my book, there's a diagram from the, 1800s that uh, this uh, explorer from Germany made a map of the burial of the little people of the Sokele. So there was like evidence of a, you know, like a burial place for these people. And then when, uh, and I also tell the my narrative in the book about going to climb this pyramid peak and I got there and I thought these two young boys were, you know, eight and 10 years old were taking, helping me, you know, get to the top. Well, it turns out they were 18 and 24 or something like that. <laughs> and I, and I was like, Oh my God, here I am. I thought these were little boys. They're not. And so I asked them, I said, well, are you guys some of those little people? And he's, and they said, yeah, that's our ancestry. <laughs> oh my God. So how tall were they? Well, they were, you know, I mean, they've been bred with oh, hybrids. Like yeah. a, you know, now it's not pure, of course, but I don't know. They were uh, like, you know, I thought maybe one was eight years old and the other was maybe 12. <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't go out in the jungle alone, a single female, you know, that's not. Yeah. And so, but it was fine. And and Hawaii, well, first of all, they ju- they found some in the Philippines. They found a new species, Homo luzonius, or something like that. You know, the, 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 on the Flores Islands, they have evidence of these little people, and now they think there's a new strain. But in Hawaii, you know, they have the Minahunis. And that's what they were, these little people that build megalithic ruins at night. Oh, my God. And as recently as, I mean, you know, unless you live there. So these, the Manahuni in Hawaii were as, what was it, 18, 1850 something, 1860. Anyway, the census for that year, I mean, they had like, you know, 30, 40, 50 Menahunis on the census. I mean, there's actual <laughs> and people just, oh, that's just myth and legend and so on and so forth. Wow. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about uh, the great migration of what is known as the sea people. Is it your feeling that this migration was just common practice to kind of 
relocate from the mother uh, continent of Mu into the Americas, into Australia, into perhaps Japan and, and Asia. I mean, because these, you know, at its height, they they had sounds like they had enough uh, technology that they could actually uh, take a a boat of some kind and go to other places. Well, yeah, and that's proven today. You know, people are now traditionally navigating all over the Pacific. But remember back then, if there was there was more land masses, so that made it, you know, it's not like you had to cross the whole Pacific Ocean back then. Yeah. And then, you know, I get a little confused about that term sea peoples because there's some very specific research on those that that sailed, you know, the Mediterranean, the Middle East area were sea peoples. But I, you know, whether how that relates to Mu, I'm not sure because, <clears throat> you know, imagine this continent in the Pacific and it was alive and well and people and, and church word talks about the colonies of Mu, whether it's the Uyghurs and the, the and North America, South America, and the the uh at that time there was a inland sea in South America that you near Tiwanaku there's evidence of a canal built and then the rest of it was a natural and so they could go right across South America to Atlantis or the Mediterranean I mean it yeah, it's really confusing. I haven't heard that that there was a canal built that it, it cut through the. You're not talking like the the Panama area. You're actually talking about South American proper. The a canal that went through the continent itself. Well, there's some pictures, uh, some of those move maps, and it wasn't the canal was just you know here are the Andes, and then. On the east side was this natural inland sea, and on the mm. west side was the Pacific. So it was just this. And I, I had a friend that I, that saw this, uh, uh, who's long gone, but he saw the the remnants of this canal structure high up in the Andes. Wow! And it and it's like they're. Uh, they're finding all these sites, you know, by LIDAR in South in the jungles in the Amazon. And so I saw one diagram how all of these temple sites were could have been feasibly along the shore of this body of water. So mm. uh, amazing. The book's called The Petroglyphs of Mu, Pompeii, Nan Badal, and the Legacy of Lemuria. My guess is Carol Nervig. Carol, why do you think there's such resistance from archaeologists to to admit that there was a continent in the Pacific? Why? Why? Uh, I mean, I guess they have to see documents before they'll even consider <laughs> the fact that uh, the myths and the legends and all the what looks like archaeological remains are just not enough for them. Well, and first of all, they don't, they pay little attention to oral histories. And the indigenous people, especially Pacific Islanders, they can go back hundreds of generations that they memorize that stuff. That's their art form. And Mu, you know, eventually there were the symbols, but it was a telepathic. There was no, 
really written language, so to speak. And so that a lot of what I've written about, I read between, read the oral histories and read between the lines. And uh, so that's one factor. Another, it's the Pacific is more remote, more, you know, it's just logistically problematic. Uh, And then uh, going to some of these places, or if they don't have the answers, you know, (laughs) that, that, that tend to avoid those topics that, and, and of course, there's the the whole thing, you know, that kind of blows the religion, you know, if there's a, a civilization that. So there's that factor that doesn't really want. And who wants us not to understand our human potential of what we used to be or what we can be or tools that we can have to make a difference today with things that being the way they are? You know, we're kind of a getting close to the edge here. <laughs> yeah. So is it your feeling that the the hominins, the humans of that period, uh, had more sensibility or more attunement to Gaia and the natural frequencies of, of the Earth and, and the cosmos? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's like their identity. And even with indigenous people, the land, the land, the land. Protect the land, take it. We are one with the land. That's all moo stuff. And they, I mean, I, this is just my opinion. I mean, I have no evidence, but it was like they're so connected. You know, all these stories of terraforming, building earth structures or, uh, all these legends about, uh, some goddess somewhere turned to stone. Well, they could, they could, alter the the you know they could actually literally merge with those physical aspects of nature i believe mm. i mean it's something you know really uh out there but uh that the stones were alive they were beings and uh and that that was you know probably the, the most important part of their identity that they're they're that connection with nature wow. and so that's been lost even, you know, there's even with indigenous people. I mean, they're the best at uh, maintaining that, but. Are there any shamanistic groups that are in these, uh, these areas that are still practicing some of the ancient traditions or is it mostly uh, too, too scary for the remaining indigenous people? Well, I think there are some Native Hawaiians that are, I mean, I, one of my teachers, so to speak, I believe he was that and certainly practicing, uh, Micronesia, my island. Um, you know, all the time I spent there, always looking to connect with, you know, sort of, uh, very highly evolved person and, and, you know, <laughs> Those, the people there, they came from Southeast Asia, you know, Philippines and Taiwan and, and New Guinea. Right. And so, and, um, I can't say that I made some personal connections that I felt were very deep and powerful energetically, but an actual practice because, well, Christianity kind of came in and took over. Yeah. That, that would put a, foot in the mud on that whole thing. Uh, as we conclude, Carol, 
Is there a symbol or perhaps symbols that are uh, attributed to Mu that we see in other cultures? I, I know you mentioned, and you actually have a picture in your book of a library in Tibet, uh, and your book's filled with petroglyphs and all kinds of symbols, but is there one universal symbol that we might see in, say, dynastic Egyptian temples, um, in very, very, very old uh, parts of, say, Peru, Cusco, and these other places that are identified as Mu? Well, the the wing disc is very ancient and goes back to the time of Mu. And so that has ramification. I just saw a petroglyph, the Tlingit, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, tribe in Alaska on the, the petroglyph beach. There's a wings, you know, a wing disc petroglyph. Wing disc. And, uh, and that's, oh, what was the date on that? It was like old, like, wait a second. Maybe I have that here. Do I have that? Okay. Uh, 8,000 years ago. They, 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 they dated that the, was it a, a bone or a, what was it? No, it's a petroglyph. But what was it cut on? A piece of rock. Rock, yeah, yeah, like okay. the shore area. Okay, wow. So there's yeah. still a lot of symbology out there that relates to this ancient culture and uh, the indigenous people recognize and they actually identify that, I guess. Yeah, you'll find these symbols throughout, you know, many, much of the indigenous world. And um, there are... Uh, yeah, I think, and as far as the petroglyphs of Pompeii, that to me is the most fascinating one. There's a half of a winged sun disc there. So <clears throat> fascinating. Uh, Carol, how can people uh, read more about you? Have a Facebook page. Is it what, what's the Facebook page title? It's the title of the book, The Petroglyphs of Mu. Okay. And so you're posting photos and data and uh, I guess you'll announce your new book uh, on that site when it's uh, when it's available. Right, right, correct. Fantastic. As always, a pleasure speaking with you. We just can't get enough. You know, it's one of those situations where there's, it just it just screams out to me that there needs to be more research in these areas. Some university needs to invest uh, some time. I think imaging the bottom of that part of the ocean would probably bring back some pretty significant fines and uh, make us all wonder what the heck's going on here. <laughs> That's my dream. I want a submarine. <laughs> oh, is that it? Do you want to go dive down in the deepest part of that area? All those little, you know, two-man subs or something? Yeah. Wow. That could be interesting. It's probably extremely dark, though, there. I think you were mentioning it's fairly dark, even at this lower, uh, the higher uh Depths, you know, like if well, 20. Yeah, around Namadal, but the rest of the reef is pristine, beautiful scuba diving water. And well, hopefully there'd be a light on it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, Carol, great to speak with you and uh, continued success with this book. Okay. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. I keep thinking uh, out loud when I'm speaking to somebody who is um, 
diving off of ancient sites uh, like Mammadaw and wondering when are we going to actually begin seeing some serious research expeditions going down there. And as I stated in the very beginning of the program, there's probably some uh, underlying fear and uh, trepidation of going underwater, discovering ruins of a city, and identifying it significantly older than our history. And this is probably what we're going to run into off of Man Madal. We're going to start dating the uh, artifacts that are found in and around these ruins and discover that they're tens of thousands of years older than our written history. And this is happening. This is happening with LIDAR. And I mentioned this also, you know, these these uh, scans that are uncovering massive Maya cities. And I'm speaking specifically to uh, the Guatemalan biosphere that was scanned a few years ago and 60,000 ruined pyramid city uh, buildings and uh, structures were discovered. And they're not touching that. Have you heard any follow-up about that? You're not going to because it is a a monstrous undertaking. And I got to say this, when you look at some of those LIDAR scans and you look at the pyramids that are coming back to us in these uh, images, they're very unusual pyramids. They're, they're not typical four sides. They're multiple sides. They are uh, unusual platforms, unusual uh, road connections, the sock bees that we, we see. A lot of anomalous material is coming back to us. And it, I... It's it's going to be probably left to the to another generation, decades in, in the future that we start seeing excavations of this uh, of, the, of this massive site, and so it kind of goes. It's kind of the same thinking that we get with underwater archaeology. It's time consuming. It's expensive, and what do we do when we uncover a lost city? <laughs> so. I mean, a couple of decades ago, Graham Hancock uh, dove in the in, uh, in the Indian Sea and uh, had a chance to look at Dwarkia and a, a number of artifacts from that city came back eight to nine thousand years in the past, and that's a very sophisticated city. We don't hear about that. We read about it, but we don't we don't hear. National Geographic, the Smithsonian Institute, or any university actually tackling that. Why isn't the National Geographic interested in looking at this uh, Crescendus, the city off of New Orleans? We've spoken to uh, the uh, discoverer a couple of different times, but they National Geographic wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I think it's the same thing that we see here and Man, Nan Modal, they they don't want to touch it because they they're just keeping the the story the narrative of a uh, uh, sophisticated man being you know three or four thousand years old and anything bef- before that it's like hunter gatherers um, semi intelligent humans and I think I think that the, the, it's a great fear of them getting caught with their pants down. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, you have Earth Ancients to listen to 
if you want the latest and the greatest, and um, I hope you keep listening. So, hey, uh, upcoming next week we have uh, a, a kind of a best of with uh, Earth Ancient Special Edition of the Archives. I found a recording back in 2018 of John Van Aken, who is the president of the Edgar Casey Foundation, and this interview. It, it went up, it got some good coverage, but it really gives a great insight into documents of Edgar Casey reading specific lives of people who live in Atlantis. And what's so great about Van Aken is that he is taking direct readings from Casey uh, that were not in uh, his books and giving us great insight, uh, not only on piezoelectric technology, that's what they would. Uh, that's what you call crystal technology, but also how people were using the technology and some fantastic insight on the the uh, the intelligence, the spirituality, and what we would consider a religion of the Atlantinians. Now, remember, Casey is one of the greatest psychics or or seers that ever lived. And he is tapping into the Akashic Records. And this is what makes this interview with John Van Aken so interesting. So that's next week's program on Earth Ancient Special Edition, The Archives. Don't miss it. It'll be on this feed. And I'm actually uh, pulling out some of the uh, earlier comments and uh, introduction to that interview uh, that I found as well, which makes it a, a, a great show. So don't don't forget. I think I'm going to air it on 13th or the 14th of March, and it's a, uh, a special edition. Special edition, of the archives, uh, a unique show. Ed, anything with Edgar Casey is great. Uh, I want to also mention that Jim Vieira has been studying and written exclusively about Edgar Casey and has found some interesting material. I'm going to have Jim on the program again, probably in the summer, and he will be presenting some new material on Edgar Casey that I had not heard about before. But he also has spent a great deal of time uh, at the Edgar Casey Foundation, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and uh, has uncovered some material that's quite insightful. Now, I also want to mention that we are a sponsor of Contact in the Desert, and this is probably the most unique uh, conference of its kind in the United States. Uh, we're a sponsor, as I mentioned, and I'm going to be there for three days interviewing some fascinating people. Uh, we're probably going to fill up our schedule with people like Graham Hancock, uh, Dr. A.V. Loeb, Linda Moulton Howe, but there's some other people that I have, I have not heard about uh, that we will feature on Earth Ancients, probably sprinkle a little bit of destiny with some of the experiencers. And this is something I'm going to capture. And uh, the only way for us to know what's going on with these UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, and alien interactions, is to work with experiencers. Now, there are uh, groups of people within MUFON, Mutual UFO uh, Groups, that are filled with experiencers. And these are people who have been abducted, who have had experiences with alien races since they were younger, 
and I'm going to find the best of the best, the most uh, respected experiencers, and we're going to do a series of discussions with people who have had interactions. And this is the only way that we can get information from people here on Earth, Earthlings, who are interacting with alien uh, people, beings. We're not going to get it from you, the NASA. We're not going to get it from the United States Space Command. We're not going to get it from the European Space Agency. If they if they are connecting with off-world types, we're not going to hear about it because they don't consider us worthwhile and they want to keep the lid on it. So <laughs> we're, we're not going to hear from them in the next few years unless the off-world types go, okay, we're just going to let... Earthlings know about it. We're going to bypass you, NASA, and you, U.S. Space Command, uh, and and just go ahead and uh, contact people. I don't know what I'm going to get into with these um, interviews of, with experiencers simply because I haven't done it in probably 20 years. I used to have experiencers uh, at when I was the program director for Whole Life Expo. Those days are long gone. There's smaller conferences like UFOCon, AlienCon, that feature one or more of the top experiencers, people who have had psychological analysis, lie detector tests, who've written competently on their experience. And these are people like Whitley Strieber, Travis Walton, the, fer- the famous Travis Walton case. So I'm going to find some good goodies and uh, we're going to we're going to have some panel discussions on what is happening and maybe get a sense through these people of what to expect, what maybe some of the off-worlds uh, are, are considering, and what's happening. What, what's, what's the interaction? You know, uh, it's going to be great to interview A.V. Lowe because we've had A.V. on the program. Now, remember, not only has A.V., not signed a non-disclosure agreement with the U.S. Space Command and NASA, which frees him up to talk and expose his information. He's actually going to be in the Pacific Ocean, remember, dredging the ocean floor for bits and pieces of what he believes was a probe that burned up in our atmosphere. And of course, what does it mean if A.V. Loeb finds uh, exotic metals on the Pacific Ocean floor. Well, it means that an alien race created a probe and these are the metals that it was created from. So that would be kind of a first contact. Of course, if it's a a race that's been gone a million years or more, then there's no way for us to know about it. But just talking to him again uh, in June is going to be great fun. So expect those programs, expect the experiencer panel Uh, Of course, A.V. will be part of the uh, interview group at the Content in the Desert. And we're going to introduce ancient civilizations off-world in a different manner. And um, you'll you'll hear it in the coming shows. I've been kind of itching to to do more. And um, I'm hoping to have Dr. John, uh, John Brandenburg, who wrote Death on Mars, back on the program. He's kind of surfaced. I think the reason that he's been so hard to get a hold of is that he's been working with uh, aerial aerospace companies, uh, branches of NASA, perhaps we'll find out branches of uh, Space Command, who 
put the lid on his availability who basically don't want him to talk. <laughs> because look, what his analysis of Mars came back with was uh, pretty startling. They can't really squelch a scientist, especially a plasma f- uh, physicist uh, who has documented evidence of nuclear weapons being uh, detonated on the planet of Mars. So it's that's such a headache that the whole Mars question is a headache for me. So anyhow, look forward to Dr. John Brandenburg in the f- next few weeks. Hey, we are doing a wonderful tour in Mexico. It is our ancient Maya of Tabasco and Chiapas. It's November 10th through the 17th. We're halfway full. We're only going to take about 30 people. One week, 10th through the 17th. And this is a beauty. Why is it a beauty? Well, we fly in the Verahomosa. Verahomosa is uh, Olmec land. We visit La Venta. The, one of the oldest Olmec uh, cities. And then we see the Leventa Museum, which has the megaliths of the Olmec, the megalithic heads, the volcanic uh, heads uh, carved out of this volcanic rock. We have the altars, these megalithic altars. Some of them weigh as much as 25 tons. How are they lifted? How are they moved? The carving is a great, great question too. So we get to see that museum. And then we bus to Palenque. And Dr. Edwin Barnhard, who is the uh, expert who created the survey, the number one uh, ground survey of Palenque, is our guide. And he's told me uh, that not only are we going to see the main civic area where all the temples and pyramids are, he will be taking us on a special journey on the outer circumference of this wonderful city, to see unknown temples, pyramids, and buildings that just have not been excavated, that that are uh, known by him, known by the other archaeologists that are there. Uh, But he's going to show us that. That's a two-day venture. And then we bus to three other locations, uh, and one of them we have to take a boat to get to. And he has selected the best of the best in that Chiapas area. So again, for more information... Go to earthancients.com forward slash tours, T-O-U-R-S. Come out and join us. It is a blast. I will be bringing my tri-field meter to test the fields. And whenever we find an energy field, you can sit and do a little meditation. You can do some intention work. And uh, it's kind of fun. I really like it there. It's our Maya tour, once a year Maya tour. November 10th through the 17th. For all the details, earthancients.com forward slash tours. If you have any questions, Cliff, what is this all about? Why are you going here? Tell me more about this. I mean, a lot of people are concerned about Mexico, and I tell everybody, it's the border towns, people. It's not Mexico proper. It's the border towns that are having the issues. I have been traveling to Mexico for over 25 years, never ever have I had a problem, ever not a problem. So don't worry about that. If you need to send me an email, earthancients for you at gmail.com. The letter, the number four, the letter U at gmail, earthancients at gmail.com. Send me an email and I will get back to you. 
All right, that's it for this program. I want to thank my guest today, Carol Nerving, coming to us from South America. As always, the team of Ruth Thomas, Mark Foster, and everyone who makes this thing happen. You guys rock! You do, and I appreciate your help. All right, take care, be well, and we will talk to you next time.